ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When Yolani Amapol was growing up in Medang in Papua New Guinea, she spent a lot of time snorkelling along the coral reefs and also a lot of time climbing trees. Right up until the end of high school, she was likely to be found hanging out in the branches of a tree. Now, given that Yolani grew up to be a conservation biologist and zoologist, you might assume that climbing trees came out of her love of nature. But in fact, Yolani was up there not so much to get close to animals, but to get away from people. She wanted the space and quiet to read a novel, very often her beloved Anne of Green Gables. Over the last 10 years, Yolani has spent much of her time along the Kikori River, which is home to a very unusual animal, the pig-nosed turtle. And these pig-nosed turtles have changed this book-loving introvert because in caring for the pig-nosed turtle, Yolani has had to get to know the many people living along the Kokori River. These tribal groups have their own cultural practices and speak different languages, but they all refer to Yolani as Turtle Lady. Hi, Yolani. Hi. We're here talking together in Port Moresby, but as I say, you grew up in Medang. Where's that? So Medang is up north. It's back when Papua New Guinea was Papua and New Guinea. Uh, Medang is found, was found in what we knew as New Guinea. So we were colonised by the Germans and speak mostly Tokpisin. What were your family doing living there? So my father was a fisheries officer and my mother was a teacher. I have four siblings, so two elder sisters and an older brother, a younger brother. And I spent most of my high school um, surrounded by nephews and nieces that I was forced to babysit. Forced to babysit. Mm. <laughs> so I guess that makes sense that you liked escaping to go along, you know, go trees. snorkeling, up trees and snorkeling. Well, tell me about the snorkeling first. What, what are the beaches like? Around Medang. So Medang isn't, um, when you think of a coastal place or a seaside place, you think large, long stretches of white sandy beaches. Medang was, is coral reefs or just reefs. So uh, going to the beach means you come back with scratches and um, yeah, a lot of pain. And so my snorkeling, uh, the first time I brought a snorkel into the water, there was my own snorkel, I got... Mangled, is that the word? Yeah, mangled. So, yes, the the waves and the reefs decided to make a sandwich out of oh, me. No. So I got smashed up along a lot of um, reefs growing up. So and was, why did you keep going out there? What was so special? It's beautiful. Uh, when you go below the water, you can come into a totally different world. It's really, really colourful. One of the things about Papua New Guinea is we're part of what is known as the Coral Triangle, which is a hotspot for coral reefs. And I didn't know that, but I appreciated it when I was younger. You would um, go in and have fire coral and they're like um, lime green, yellow. So you'd have a completely different colorful world. And it was just maybe an hour's walk away from my house or 10 minutes away from my school. And uh, Going there, going underwater is like disappearing into a whole other world. Did you catch fish as well or just looking? Just looking. A lot of looking. I had um, friends who lived down the road from me who are American. 
Um, so maybe three houses away, and they had an aquarium. And so once in a while, we'll go down and catch fish for the aquarium and then come back, release them. And it was, I think, um, the restocking and stocking of their aquarium brought us into that whole other world of the first time when when you put on a mask enough to see clearly what's under the water. It's not the same as just opening your eyes in seawater. It's all blurry. But when you put a mask on, it's like you've opened the door to something very beautiful. So how were you spending your time when you weren't snorkeling? I was at home, um, a lot of babysitting, a lot of reading. So between when I think about my childhood, I think a lot of reading, a lot of children and running away from chores up, please. Who introduced you to books and reading? My mother decided that you had to do English in order to do well in school. And so we had a lot of reading growing up, like the little books. And then I think when I came across Anne of Green Gables, I didn't pick up the book because I thought it was interesting. I picked it up as a set of other books. They, the, the covers looked nice. So they were all the same author. And I started that book and I loved it so much that I must have read it constantly, the same book. Um, it has, uh, if you picked up the book now, it's got like um, stickers from when I was in primary school. <laughs> so I, I got the book when I was 11. And then it has all my favorite rugby players from when I was in high school. So we were the high school girls who liked to watch rugby for the, for the NRL shorts, not necessarily the game. So when you pick up my book, it has all the little things about my life from 11 up. Like it has mud on one of the page from when the book fell off the tree. So I was up the tree and the book fell down into the mud at the bottom of the tree. What sort of trees? What was a good tree for you to hang Water out in? apple. Why? Why was mm. that the tree? It was easier to climb and my mom couldn't reach it. So it got to a point where my mom had to chop down the tree to save my life. Truly. Somebody told her that um, if you wanted the tree to bear more, you had to wring it. And so I just watched my precious tree go down. But yeah, but my mom loved plants. So our house was a mini forest, and so I just came down the water apple tree and went up the mango tree. (laughs) And I guess the great thing about a a tree, it's like having your own room, but somewhere where you're too far away for other people to come in easily. And nobody can see you unless they know you're up there. So I do what I needed to do and then escape up a tree. And then I had these PVC pipes that we had around the house for construction, and you could um, hold one end. It's like a long tube. So you could hold it in your hand and then just hit the fruit. The fruit would run down the pipe right into your hand. So it was like room service up the tree. <laughs> um, I love it. Did you bring up a pillow or rug or anything or you just sat just in the, the tree? Books. Just the books. Just the books. And it the was pipe. really uncomfortable, actually. It was very uncomfortable. Once I was one of those people that once I started reading, everything else faded. So you could, there could be a fire, an earthquake, someone would be talking to me and I would not hear anything. Well, given how much you loved books, Yulani, did you ever dream of being a writer then when you I were did. a kid? I did. It was what I wanted to do all of primary school. I just didn't know how. And uh, people ask you, they constantly ask you, I don't do that to my children now, but they ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, books. 
you know, I want to be in the water. And so even when I was in primary school, I used to have books where I'd write stories and the class would read them, so we'd pass it around in class. When I really started thinking about it, I thought there's no authors that I know around me. Now there are. Um, now with social media, you, you can see Papua New Guinean authors. And I think back then there was two. We just didn't know. We wanted that exposure when I was in primary school. And so I was thinking if I wanted to become an author, how would I be? And that path wasn't clear. How did marine biology then enter the picture? Marine biology entered the picture when I was in grade nine. So I went to high school and they kept asking the question, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? It is up? a terrible thing to ask a kid, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it's so, it's stressful. It's what what am I going to be when I grow up? I don't know. So I, I first wanted to be an author and then I decided I wanted to be an electrician. An electrician? Why? Light up the world. Something really cool about electricians. And then in high school, I sat down and really thought about it. And I said, let's think about what you don't want to do. And I thought, I don't want to be in an office. I don't want to sit behind the desk. And what do I want to do? I I loved the look of the moon behind the trees. You know, So I said, in my head, if there's one thing I want to do, I want to sleep under the stars. And I just, I, I want to be outside. And so I knew I wanted to be outside. That was fact one. And fact two, I knew I didn't want to be around people. So what's outside, not around people. And I liked the snorkeling. So every Sunday we would have Sunday dinner. We'd have dinner at maybe like four. And we'd do like one big cooking thing and the family would come together on Sundays. And then we'd watch documentaries on TV just for the fun of it. Nature documentaries. Nature documentaries. And so one day um, we were doing that and David Attenborough was talking about uh, corals in the sea and he mentioned marine biology. And I was like, this is actually a thing. And so I told my mom, I'm going to be a marine biologist. And they said, oh, yeah. And nobody took you seriously. They ask you <laughs> what you want to be, but they don't take you seriously when you tell them. And so I said, marine biology. And I was like, that's it. I, I've, I've locked in on something. And I had made up my mind. I was like, marine biology it is. And that's when my mom realized she's really serious about this. This wasn't, um, she was really worried. She thought I'd be hungry for the rest of my life. (laughs) You mostly work along the Kokori River, Yolani. How do you get there from Moresby? So from Port Moresby, um, it's a two-hour flight. You get a little tiny plane. I love tiny planes because you fly low and you can see things. Um, so Port Moresby, it goes Port Moresby, Blue Seas, and usually we go over the water. When you're coming back, you go over land, but usually when we're going, you go over the water. So that seas change from blue. As you go into Kerama, it goes sort of greenish gray. And then when you go into Kikori, from Kerama, you have you can see beaches, and you can see it's, it's mountainous a little bit. Um, when you're going into Kikori, the mountains just become flatland and you just the water turns brown and it's just flat land of trees. It's like a sea of trees. And that's how you fly from brown water into a sea of green. As far as the eye can see, you just have a spread of green and little meandering rivers making, like, it's like a maze underneath you. What kind of river is the Kokori? Like how, how big is it? It's around 400 kilometres in length. Um, it's a delta. 
So the Kikori is formed from, it drains two rivers of the highlands. They come and they meet. And so when the two rivers from the two provinces meet, the place where they meet is where the Kikori starts. And it starts in a very mountainous place. And as it flows down, the waters go from clear, crystal clear water into the delta. And that's when you go from big boulders and clear water to limestone, limestone caves. The colors start to change. So when you come down from crystal clear water, you come, it starts to look a little bit green, but you can still see what's inside the water. And then from the green, it travels down, it becomes brown. And that's when the river starts to mix a little bit with the sea that's coming up and the mangroves start. So the Kikori is part of the Gulf of Papua, which has the largest strand of mangrove forest for, for New Guinea. And so as you come down, it goes from one river to many different arms. It becomes a lot of islands. Um, and if, you, if you're new to uh, the river life, you think you are, at, you are at the sea where you had islands everywhere, and you think, okay, the... Water on the other side of this island must be another river, and the water on this side must be another, but it's just one river breaking into many branches before it goes into the sea. And how much fish and animal life and, and diversity is there in the Kokori? Kokori is a crazy place for diversity. It currently sits on the UNESCO's tentative list for World Heritage Areas, mostly for its biodiversity and cultural diversity values. And so it's got the second highest um, number of endemic freshwater fish. So the highest number for Papua New Guinea comes from the Fly, the Fly River, which is just next door to us. We've got over 100 freshwater fish. We work with six turtles. So four of them are freshwater. That includes the pig-nosed turtle. And two of them are marine turtles. So you have the green turtle and the leatherback turtle that come into nest once in a while. Sawfish have found in the river too, and they've got an important role in coming-of-age ceremonies in some mm. of the groups there. Tell me about that. So the Kikori, we started working with sawfish or with sharks and rays in 2018. So it was, I'm still learning about sharks and rays, fascinating. And so we documented 43 species of sharks and rays just for the Gulf of Papua. There's 25% of Papua New Guinea's shark and ray species. And amongst them are four species of sawfish. And so sawfish for the world are critically endangered. And so when there was a time when we went and sat down with communities, because when you want to talk conservation, um, I don't say, I don't like to put, I don't like to put conservation from my perspective. I asked them, why is it important to you? And so a lot of these stories got lost along the way. And so we sat with the old men and they talked about how sawfish were back in the day. And they said, back in the day, um, if a young man caught his first sawfish, the uncle would get the rostrum. It looks like a saw. It's got like a sort of like a flat, I don't know, blade with teeth on the side. And he'd wear it on his tie to his backside and dance with it until his backside bled. From the jagged edge? Saw, yes. Wow. And that was um, showing his happiness that um, his nephew had just caught uh, his first sawfish. And so it, it, was, uh, it was recognizing that you are now stepping into a boy becoming a man. So it was a rite of passage. How many people live along the banks of the Kokori? 
Believe it or not, even though we work with 10 tribes, there's less than 5,000 people. So there are little pockets of people, um, different tribes, but not a big population. Can you see those cultural differences as you travel along the river, Yolani? Like, do the different groups look different, sound different as you move along? To a person coming in for the first time, they all look alike. But then as you're in there for a while, you can be like, okay, this is from this tribe and this is from this tribe. And uh, the differences aren't obvious until I point it out or they point it out. The way people eat, the tools that they use. So like, for example, houses. Houses up the river are made from sago palm for their thatched roofs. And houses down on the coast are made from um, nipa palm. So what's around us? Um, people up the river eat their sago. So they all, like, sago is like staple food. Um, people up the river will have their sago in bamboo, whereas people down on the coast will have their sago in nipa palm leaves. Uh, depending on what's around you, how you eat, what you eat, how you prepare food. It's in clothing. It's also in the instruments you use to make music. It's in the carvings that you make. So the carvings, the type of trees that you use. And this is an eight-hour trip. From the top of the river to the bottom is an eight-hour trip. And if I stuck to the Kikori proper, the Kikori River proper, you'd go to at least um, six, seven tribes before you came to the coast, speaking different languages. And so um, sometimes you'll have people make fun of each other's language. Like, can, can you hear how they spoke? It was really funny how they spoke Moto. And then they'll laugh and you'll look at them and be like, you all sound the same to me. <laughs> But the diversity, the way you prepare your food, um, people up the river love bamboo shoots. They introduced me to bamboo shoots. And you'll get fresh fish up the river. You'll get uh, shells or shellfish um, in the delta, prawns in the delta, huge prawns in the delta. And then you'll get crabs and all of that down on the coast. And how have these different groups got along with one another over time? Oh, they've had over 10,000 years of history. So the oldest um, human specimen, if I can say, call it like that, um, from the Kikori is 10,000 years old. So the Kikori has been inhabited for 10,000 years. They've had a lot of love-hate relationships. You know, there's um, the Karawa, which is like the biggest tribe in the Kikori, the biggest headache, we proud, they proudly say they're a headache, and I proudly acknowledge the headache. They're the biggest tribe in Kikori, and they came from the Kiwai Islands over in, uh, in the mouth of the Fly River. And they're probably, I like to say, probably one of the biggest colonizers of the Gulf of Papua before um, actual colonization. So they came and they had a lot of warfare to take as much land as they did, and so they've got maybe 13 villages and you have a small, smaller tribes like the Kibiri who have three villages and you have the Rumu who have another. Um, a lot of, so I, I know the size of the tribe by the number of villages they have. So this river, the Kokori, is home to the pig-nosed turtle. How rare is that turtle? Locally it's not, which is... When you're talking about rare to local people, it becomes um, problematic, for, especially when they know every nesting season we see these animals everywhere. But then a lot of Papua New Guineans have never seen a pig-nosed turtle. 
I spent most of my life looking at the pignosta tolona five toya coin. Ah, uh, it's on the coin. Is it's it? It's on the, the coin. Picture? And I spent most of my life thinking there was a marine turtle. I think much like most Papua New Guineans. And it wasn't until I started working with the pignosta turtle that I realized that the turtle on your coin is actually not a marine turtle, it's a freshwater turtle. And so is it only found in the Kikori? It's not only found in the Kikori, so it's not also known as the Fly River turtle because the first specimen of the turtle was actually taken off a tributary of the Fly River. And so for Papua New Guinea, between the Fly and the Vailala, and for its range, it goes over the border into West Papua, the, rivers, the southern rivers of West Papua. And then um, it's got maybe three or four rivers in Australia. But um, the turtles in Australia and Papua New Guinea are very different from each other. They look, they're the same species, but the behavior is different, the sizes are different, and I think that just comes from being separated for a long time. So what does the pig-nosed turtle in the Kokori look like then? It's big. If you came across it in the water, it looks like a rock, a big boulder. It doesn't have a shell that's outside. Like when you when you think of marine turtles, you think the hard shell is outside. With the pignose turtle, like the leatherback turtle, the skin grows over the shell. So you have, it looks like a gray boulder. And if you're walking up the river and it's in with the rocks, you won't tell that it's a pignose turtle. And it's huge. So it can grow, it can go as much as like over a meter, 25 kilograms. And does its nose really look like a pig? Is that an accurate description? I think it's cuter than a pig's nose. <laughs> piglet, on piglet nose Maybe because I've been looking at it for a while. But um, I think as more people start to see the pig nose turtle, they'll start probably calling the pig, you know, the turtle nose pig, you know. It looks, um, it does have a snout. You look at it and you think like a little mini snorkel. It's cuter when it's, a hatchling. And and is that used for breathing underwater? Is that why its nose is shaped that way or what's the advantage? Looking for food, breathing underwater, looking for food mostly because a lot of the Kikori, as I said, is a delta. You can't really see. Um, it's We call it a river turtle, but it usually goes up the river when it's trying to nest or down to the coast. It spends most of its time in the delta. One fun fact that my children love about the pignose turtle is it can actually breed underwater through its cloaca. So it's, it's a butt-breeding turtle. A butt-breeding turtle. Yes. What kid does not love a butt-breeding yes. animal of any description? <laughs> what do the locals call it? What's the word for this animal in, in those for those groups? So with our organisation, uh, the name's Piku for the Rumu. That's, the Rumu tribe call it Piku. Um, and then as you travel down the river, you have different names for it, like Watemu, uh, Watemui, Uo, Kaso Uo, Waima, Mayama. And you can tell which groups are related to each other by the way they say the turtle's name. So like the Poromen, and the Kibiris, they have uh, an I and an IU at the end of the, how they pronounce the, the turtle name. So Watemui, Watemu. So some of that language you can be, oh, they're probably related to each other. As you, you mentioned, Yolani, you first of all were introduced to this animal through it being on the on the on a coin and and seeing the image. But then at university you saw a flyer for a presentation. Tell me about about what happened and why you went along to that. I actually got introduced to the pignose turtle in university. 
I was doing an essay on leatherback turtles and the nesting of leatherback turtles. And at that time, the person working with the pignose turtle was a Brazilian doing a PhD at the University of Canberra. And so while I was in the middle of writing my essay, I saw the flyer and the flyer said, we're talking about pignose turtle nesting. And I thought, I'm doing a paper on leatherback turtle nesting, turtle, turtle nesting, nesting. I might get some ideas from this. So I went in and we went into this little room, little lecture theater, and I'm short. And so I went and sat in front um, so I could see and hear better. And so when the Brazilian walked in, it's one of those life-changing stories that you don't really think is life-changing until a couple of years later. I got introduced to the turtle through the Brazilian, and I think I also got introduced to how my life was going to change. What did she say that had such an impact on you? Well, she walked in, Carla, that's her name. Um, she's got a really strong personality. So she walked into the room and we're all sitting there watching her and she walks to the front, she stands there and she looks at us and she says, why am I here? And I, I sat there thinking, you don't know why you're here? You know, is that a trick question? And she was really serious, like she looked angry. <laughs> and she said, why am I here? And she said, you know, I come from Brazil. I had to travel halfway around the world to come work with an animal that belongs to you. That was mind-blowing for me. Um, she said, why? And so uh, maybe three years later, I, would, I was asked to look for a project and if it was feasible, get funded for it. And um, I remembered her and her asking, why should I travel halfway around the world to come and work? on something that in the end belongs to you? That was a hard question. It was a great question. And I think with a lot of Papua New Guineans, that's, that's how you deal with them. You challenge them. So you rose. You thought, I'm going to rise to this challenge. How dare this Brazilian come and say, what are you doing about it? And so three years or four years later, I emailed her and said, well, um, I want to work with the turtle. And I remember you. She, of course, had no idea who I was. I said, you walked in on my class one time and you said this. And so um, I'm thinking, okay. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Ilani, it uses that cute little snout to help find food in the sometimes murky water of the delta of the Kokori River. What's it looking for? What's the pig-nosed turtle eat? So it's um, omnivorous. Um, depending on which part of the river you go to, people will tell stories about it. I found that the best people who actually hook the turtle from the, the delta. So we divide the, the Kikori River into three parts. The river, where it's freshwater, the delta, where it's freshwater and seawater mixed, and then the coast, where you go into the sea. So in the delta, they've got little crustaceans. Um, they'll eat mangroves, so the fruits. 
So once in a while, you can come and they got little claws on the flippers, so two claws. That's one of the distinct features. And they'll hang off a mangrove branch into the water at high tide and pick off the fruit and eat them. So they're a pretty sure fit at all. Um, so they'll have mangrove fruit. Sometimes they'll have little fish, but they love little crabs. And so um, the people, especially in the Delta, tell you if you really want to catch a pignose turtle, you put a little red crustacean at the end and they'll come for it. Can't resist yeah, they that can't crab. Resist. <laughs> so I tried out, um, one time I had some at home and I just hatched a nest and I made, I put like sweet potato and chicken and they all went for the chicken. So goes to show who loves meat. You describe how big they are. Are there any animals that eat them? When they're small, a lot of animals. As hatchlings, practically anything can eat them, including catfish. When they're running out of the, the nest, you have goannas that are huge, goannas that are waiting, monitor lizards that are waiting for them. They sniff them out also. Practically anything eats you when you're small. As they grow older and the shell gets harder, then they are able to survive almost anything. Probably the only thing that can eat them in adulthood would be, as a natural predator, would be a crocodile. Are they aggressive, Yolani? Do they put up a fight if something attacks them? Oh, yes, even to each other. So with pygnose turtles, um, you don't, they don't like seeing each other. They don't like seeing each other? No. So... If if you keep from hatchlings, if you if they see each other, they'll start fighting. And so if you get a turtle out of the water and its face looks like it just something just rammed into it numerous times, and there's probably a male, but they'll fight if they see each other, especially if they're males. Uh, we had a, a project with the Mosby Nature Park here where we brought out seven, uh, 47 turtles to help them with survivorship. Um, they had to get their own tubs, so 47 separate tubs. And the tubs had to be, had to have like not, they they weren't clear. So we were going to see each other. And so you had to have each turtle in their own little dish. And then as they grew, change it. So it, they're very expensive to take care of. <laughs> but even from a young age, they, they're very aggressive. They, they don't like seeing each other. The turtle spends most of its life in the Delta. And then only when it's nesting does it travel out. So come September, it will start to move down to the coast and then some mothers will move up the river. And so we know that um, pignose turtle mums will make a choice to go whether to go upriver or downriver. We don't know why they make the choice or what makes them choose. Do they do the same one every year or does it shift? We don't know. You know it, it's, it, it keeps you interested not knowing. Um, we don't know what makes them choose to go up river, down river. We don't know if they, if like some marine turtles, that turtles return to where they were born. And we don't know that because the sands change. So the sandbanks change um, up the river, depending on how strong the flood is. When the dry season comes, the sand becomes exposed. And around every river bend, there might be a big sandbank or a small sandbank or no sandbank. And down on the coast, you have um, the river coming out, the sea coming up. They fight it out in the middle. And so last year, you might not have a sandbank. Next year, you might have a sandbank. So when the turtles are moving up the river, down the river, they don't know if we're going to find a sandbank. They're just going to go look for a sandbank. And so if I'm a mama turtle, um, if I nest this year, I'll rest next year. And then I'll go do 
my nesting the year after. And every nesting season, one turtle or mother turtle will have lay two nests. So it's two nests every two years. How do the, the mother turtles choose a good place to nest? What, what do you observe them doing? So I asked a lot of locals these questions because I think they're the best people to ask. Um, they'll choose a sandbank that's not disturbed. So if you know you've had people hanging around on that sandbank, or if you have a fishing camp on it or made a fire on it, or if it's near a village, they won't go up. And the locals say it's like you finding a safe place for your child. You know, you won't put it near a place that's busy. And so they'll go, um, they'll nest in the dry season. So the dry season in Kikori, Kikori is a wet place, so I had to laugh a little bit as I had a dry season in Kikori. Kikori gets four to eight meters of rain a year. It's one of the wettest places in the world to be. So in the dry season, it starts, that's when the water levels will drop. And so they'll watch the highest tide. And so uh, the highest tide in the month, if you see that this is like the week for the highest tide, that's when you know that a turtle's going to come up and nest. It's going to come with the highest tide. How they work out that this week is the highest tide, I don't know. They're probably sitting in, in a turtle lab under the water <laughs> deciding. But they'll come to nest on the coast on the highest tide of the month. And they'll come to the highest point in the, the sandbank. Up the river, they'll go to the sandbank that's higher, that's not muddy. So it's, it's, it's muddy sandbanks. They'll go to a place where the, the sand is dry and it's easy to dig, but not so dry as the, the sand is too loose. And do they nest by themselves or in a group of turtles? Oh, the pignose turtle is known for nesting in groups. So back in the day, um, they got population problems now, but back in the day when we spoke to older people about their tell the stories on how the turtles nest, um, the females will go as a group. So they nest in groups. They'll come across the sandbank they like, and then one of them, the scout, will come up and check it out. So locals will watch. So the first turtle that comes up, don't touch. It's a scout. So it comes, it checks if the coast is clear, if the sand is good, and it'll go back in the water, and then all the other turtles will come out. So we'll probably have a little meeting. It's pristine land here. They'll all come out and they'll start nesting. So back in the day, I had this old man used to talk about how they used to nest on the coast. He said, you know, you'd come up in the moonlight and the sandbank is like there's an earthquake. It's moving. And that's just from all the turtles that are nesting. And back in the day, they had really, really long canoes. So canoes were like over 10 meters, 7 to 10 meters long. And you could fill up an entire canoe with eggs. Today, if you're lucky, you'll catch maybe five pignose turtles on a sandbank, if you're lucky. Tell me about some of the different cultural traditions or taboos those different tribes have around this animal, around mm. the pignose turtle. So the pignose turtle is a big animal. And usually when you have a big animal that looks like the way it does, there'll be stories about it. So in a lot of the cultures in the Kikori, it's it's acknowledge that it's, it's like um, a mother species, so an origin species. So there'll be some clans that are related to it or come from it, or it's instrumental in making another clan, having some relationship with another animal that made another. So you have a sister species and things like that. So it has um, a lot of stories in culture that have gone to form taboos and custom. 
um, with some customary practices. So, for example, the Rumu back in the day, the Rumu tribe from which Piku gets its name, Piku, um, the men were not allowed to eat Piku back in the day during the times of war. The men don't eat Piku because if you eat the turtle, you'll fight like a turtle. So if you look at how they crawl, not very good fighter. And so men were restricted from eating the turtle, especially um, doing tribal fighting. And uh, back in the day, you didn't know when tribal warfare would event, like come out. And so you had to be prepared all the time. So basically men of the Rumu tribe did stay away. Do you think the women of that tribe came up with that theory so they had more turtle for themselves? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> and then you had, and then you had um, like uh, the Carol, that's the big tribe on the coast. Um, they had taboos. If your child, if you had a child and it was still crawling, you weren't allowed to eat turtle. Um, that's because they believed that the child wouldn't go past its crawling stage. We would never walk. And so pregnant women and women with toddlers were, were not encouraged to have turtle meat. So there were all these different restrictions. So turtle and turtle egg had been an important food, it sounds like, for different groups along the Kikori. Why has it become such a a threatened species now? If people have always been eating it, why why are the numbers gone down significantly the way you've seen that they have over the last 10, 15 years? Mm. So we calculated that the Kikori had seen almost 50% of its turtles gone in just, the pignose turtle gone in just 30 years. That's just for the Kikori alone. We don't know about the other rivers where the turtle is found. Um, a lot of changes have occurred along the river. One of the most, the biggest changes is tribal warfare has stopped. And so back in the day, you didn't have houses near the river because they would be the first houses to go in a fight. And so a lot of people, they didn't live near the riverbanks, they lived inside. And you didn't have big villages, it was easier to burn down, depending on your tribe. So there were tribes that went to war and there were tribes that were collateral damage, you know. So with the ceasing of tribal fighting, it was peaceful enough for people to come closer. And it was peaceful enough for people to safely travel up and down the river and get turtles where they couldn't before. One of the other things, technology has changed. So back in the day, you had to maybe paddle a canoe up the river against the current or down on the coast against the waves. Um, And now you have a motorized boat, you know. Um, Back in the day, tribal warfare and sickness kept our populations in check. Now we have medicine and now it's safer. And so our population is growing and as the population grows, as technology changes, as Papua New Guinea develops, just like as Kikori develops, your roads come in, people come in, the strange-looking animal. And so um, with all these changes, there's not one factor that's causing a decline. It's many. With the big nose turtle, they've always been eating it, but it's mostly eaten during the nesting season. That's when you see a lot of the turtle. Um, that mother turtle, it takes... a almost 25 years before they can reproduce for the first time, 22 to 25 years. So for 22 to 25 years, they have to somehow be safe and keep themselves alive until um, they're ready to have children. And so when I have this conversation with the locals, I, I say, 
It's like um, having your stand bank is like your maternity ward at the hospital. There's a designated section for women coming to have their babies. It's the same as the turtle coming to have their, lay their eggs. And if every time, we know the nesting season is between September and December, and hatching happened after that. If you had an enemy tribe or clan that constantly, every single year, hit your maternity ward, um, you'd have a problem with your population, yes? Because they take out all the women and they take out all the, all the children. How can your village grow? And that's the same thing that's happening with the turtle. Every year you're taking out the mothers, the factories that make these eggs. And then the eggs that do survive have to survive 22, 22 to 25 years before they can lay their first egg. What is it uh, about the way that the mother turtles give birth that means they're extra vulnerable to, to being attacked or, mm. or killed at that time? Um, when a pignos turtle, I think much like other turtles, gives birth, it digs its chamber and when it's laying its eggs, it goes into a trance. So it has no idea what's going on around it. Uh, you could sing, dance, you know, play the drums next to it. It's completely not with you. And so while it's in the trance, that's when it's most vulnerable. And so people can just turn it over. And once you turn a turtle on its back, you know, it becomes very difficult for it to flip itself over. And uh, a lot of turtles um, get harvested that way. And then you have them nesting in groups. So if you had them one, a single turtle nesting at once, you'd have a higher chance of others being safe. But when you nest as a group, you get taken as a group. You know, you're describing the way that the the people along this river have been living and eating and and um, observing these pignose turtles for tens of thousands of years. You know, they've got such deep knowledge of the animal. When you first turned up as a scientist from outside the Kokori, what did they think of you? Um, I was the, probably the first Papua New Guinean to work down there. Um, they'd, they'd seen scientists work with the pignos turtle before. The University of Canberra has had um, work there with WWF. I was probably the first Papua New Guinean to be there, and I wasn't from Kikori. So like I said, the best way to get a rise out of Papua New Guineans is to challenge them. And so the first thing they asked was, why you? She's female. Um, Kikori is very patrilineal. She's short. She's loud. Um, all the things that irritate people. <laughs> So um, why you and not us was one of those questions. And then the great thing about being Papua New Guinean and having the challenge amongst ourselves was they got to ask me all these things. Why are you here? There's no problem with the turtle, you know. And that's, that was the first conversation that had to happen. Before we could do anything about the problem, we had to acknowledge there was a problem. And so um, Carla's work there had started people talking about the turtle and looking at the data because they collected it themselves. They monitored sandbanks. And so when I went down, there were lots of questions they wanted to ask Carla but couldn't. When I went down, they got to challenge me and ask me these questions. And so why is it so important to you? And that's when I turned it back. Why is it important to you? I'm from Edang. We don't have the big nose turtle. And when I go back, I don't care, you know. So you have, um, you, you have to have the conversation in a way that challenges people to get up and take action over what belongs to them. When you look back, Yolani, what are some of the mistakes you made in, 
in how you had those conversations or how you what assumptions you made about the the people there and their relationship with the the environment around them I made a lot of mistakes I don't know where to start talking about the number of mistakes I made sometimes I sit back and I look back to me first going there and I think I'm so surprised they were this patient with me um there was a lot of explaining there was a lot of stupid things I did like what uh, oh how you walk into a man's house so it's uh, it's it's bit the different tribes there are different ways to act which is crazy because the tribes can go for you can go from one tribe to another tribe tribes land in five minutes just crossing over a drain that you can't see but as soon as you go over it's somebody else's land now and so with different cultures and different languages different customary practices on how you're supposed to behave how you're supposed to act how you're supposed to talk and the places you can and cannot go and how you sit where you sit yeah, so all these things i think the biggest mistake that um i went in with the head of a biologist and the head of a university student so i went in thinking i knew things and now i look back and i realize um i didn't know anything when once you sat down and listened you learned more And so I made I probably made a lot of sentences that they knew were inaccurate. You know, and they they test you. That's what they do. They'll test you the first time. They'll ask you questions like, "Oh, so why is it why is this thing like this?" And they know the answer, but they want to know if you university student with a degree know like anything. And so they'll test you and I definitely fail a lot of times. I think with the Kikori and them um accepting me was the fact that I didn't leave. I kept coming back. And so they realized um she be tested here she's failed but she keeps coming back. <laughs> so would people correct you like how how did you realize you'd done the wrong thing is it something you just observe or are you do people take you aside and say hey when you enter a house do it this way or depends on the tribes it depends on the people it depends on the village like there's some places where the women will take you aside um there's some places where you didn't realize it was a mistake until 4 years later when you're like oh. oh yeah and then there's some tribes that will outright tell you and they'll just get mad in your face or become aggressive um because you did something that was and so a lot of times I'd sit there having someone screaming at me and trying to figure out what what's the point of this screaming thing um why are you angry before I got it and you're also open to when people scream at you or shout at you You don't take it I don't take it personally. I I take it as another form of communication. And I I I say like I prefer if you're angry to my face than angry behind my back because I don't know what you're plotting behind my back if you're mad at me but smile at me. Um and the thing with Kikori is they're very expressive people. I don't think it's just Kikori. I think it's most rural Papua New Guinea when we're sad we cry, when we're angry we get mad. And when we're really angry we break stuff. So <laughs> you accept the emotion and you express the emotion and so when i come to put mosby i i i have trouble with that because i have to be diplomatic you have to restrain yourself restrain a bit yourself and smile when i don't want to smile <laughs> and um i think when you go in with uh, the mindset of learning of wanting to understand your eyes and your senses are open to what the possibilities are and i think um training as a scientist also helps that Um, when you're training as a scientist, you look at all the factors that could be influencing something. 
And uh, so you, you can't go in with a closed mindset. You say these are patrilineal groups. So what does that mean for where the power is to make a change, like to make a change about how you hunt, say, the turtle or what behave around the nests? Like what have you worked out about who really has got the, the position to make change and influence? Women can influence. Uh, men make the ultimate decision. Kikori is interesting in a way that it isn't just a traditional way of how things are done and who makes decisions. Um, the Kikori River has the gas pipeline on one side, the oil pipeline on the other side. It's had over 30 years, 40 years of logging activity. And so when you're patrilineal, the people who people talk to, if they need, like Papua New Guinea has Lenten or customary Lenten, so you need to get tribal permission. When I say tribal permission, they're not asking the women and the children, they're asking the men who own the land. Land is passed down from father to son. So the men make most of the decisions on the land. And when you've had the influence of oil, gas, logging, um, these aren't traditional decisions. These are decisions that come in with other things and the complications that arise with that. And so when we talk about who makes decisions, even for turtles, how the things living on and under and in the water, um, on land and in water are managed, you are looking at decisions that are made by people who have been influenced by a number of factors, not just traditionally patrilineal, but now um, the things that come with extractives. I can't help but thinking, though, it's a little ironic that you thought you were going to study biology because you wanted to be out in nature and away from people. But it seems like a lot of what your work in the Kokori has been, has been around humans. It's, yes. I went there to get away from people and I end up talking more about the people. I went there for a turtle and ended up falling in love with the people. Even like in all the complicated cultural diversity and uh, you don't know what you can get, it keeps it interesting. But it also makes your life a little, my life, I think, um, more satisfying. Do you still sometimes need to take yourself away, though, and climb up a tree with a good book? I think Kikori is like that, climbing up a tree, like the Kikori itself. Because most of the time you're traveling from one place to another, you're meandering through the forest, you're going through the, the Kikori at sunset, it's just mangrove forest, calm water, sun setting, and you're just like, I, I think I'm more sane when I'm in Kikori than I am outside. And I think um, for the pignose turtle story, um, we know that the turtle's in trouble. And one of the key take-home messages for what we've learned in the Kikori, what I've learned in the Kikori is when something's in trouble on tribal lands, um, it's best for the people to handle it. You know, so what I do and what scientists do actually is collect data and inform and then accept the decision that is made with the information that is given. With a lot of our conservation programs, traditionally in PNG, um, you have us seeing a problem and then thinking of a solution to solve the problem. Whereas, and then we cut out the fact that these people live with this animal. They also see it, they also value it but in their own way, and the best way to handle their solution because like the turtle, there's a lot of animals, there's a lot of wildlife in decline in Papua New Guinea, and a lot of our wildlife is very endemic. The birds of paradise are one. 
Um, just because we use it a lot doesn't mean we hate it and we want it to go. The best people to manage and change a declining trend are the people who live the closest with these animals and the people who will hurt more when the animals are not here anymore are the ones who lived with it for thousands of years. Yolani, I've loved speaking with you. Thank you so much for being our guest on Conversations. Thank you for having me. Broadcast. Podcast. You're listening to Conversations. Yolani Amapo was my guest today, and you can hear all of this week's specific conversations at the ABC Listen app or at the Conversations website. And a big thank you to the team who made this week of Conversations from the Pacific possible. Justine Kelly and Claudine Ryan from ABC International, Bridget Berger and Alison Barclay from ABC Audio Studios, research from Tamar Cranswick and Hannah R. Kelly's. Belinda Cora, ABC PNG, and Carol Kudu for making us so welcome in Port Moresby. And to the guests who welcomed Richard into their homes in Suva. And our trip to the Pacific would not have been possible without the brilliant efforts of Conversations producer Maggie Morris. And a huge thank you to Maggie for her work over these past months and for being such an excellent travel companion for Richard and myself. And our thanks equally to executive producer and Conversations visionary, Carmel Rooney. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. I'm Bobby McCumber, the host of a brand new podcast from ABC Radio Australia called Stories from the Pacific. The tradition of storytelling is such a huge part of life in the Pacific. Stories connect generations. Dad and I really had to learn how to be father and son. Bridge political differences. Sports can be like soft diplomacy. Record histories. It's a repetitive pattern of a man marrying and divorcing and then marrying again, divorcing. And create community. There was never a moment I felt like I didn't have the support system. Stories from the Pacific draws you deep into the lives of Pacific Islanders who have seen and done amazing things. You can find Stories from the Pacific every week on your favourite podcast app or the ABC Pacific website.